This is John Grisham. Welcome to this week's edition of Book Tour. I am in Winston-Salem, North Carolina at Bookmarks with my friend, Charlie Lovett. We'd like to thank our presenting sponsor, Audible, for being part of this special series. Hi, I'm John Grisham, and you're listening to Book Tour. Today, I'm in Winston-Salem, North Carolina at a brand new independent bookstore called Bookmarks in downtown. Its director is Jamie Southern, and here she is. Well, welcome, everyone. My name is Jamie Southern. I'm operations director here at Bookmarks, and we're just so excited to, number one, have this space finished and open, and number two, to have such an amazing event this week to kind of kick things off for our new home. Um, So if you don't know much about Bookmarks, let me just tell you a little bit about us. We are a literary arts nonprofit organization. This year, we will be celebrating our 13th annual book festival in September. We are now the largest annual book festival in North and South Carolina. And in addition to that, we do a lot of um, different programming throughout the year in the triad, um, a really great authors and schools program where we send authors into uh, K through 12 and, and even college and pre-K schools throughout the triad. Um, one of our goals being to get books into the hands of kids. So um, everything you see available for purchase in this beautiful new space. Um, The profits from those sales go back into um, our organization and towards that mission of um, helping to reach those kids in the school program and also to provide free books to kids um, on top of a lot of the other things we do. So um, hope that you will uh, sign up for our our newsletter if you haven't already done so and find a way to um, get more involved with bookmarks. So today we have a really special event um, for the 13th and final stop on John Grisham's first book tour in a very long time. We're really excited to welcome him to Winston-Salem to be in conversation with our very own special author, Charlie Lovett. So I'm going to turn it over to these guys. Thank you, Jamie. I'm delighted to be here. When we planned the book tour, I started talking about it a few months ago because I've done a, an extensive coast-to-coast book tour once in my life a long time ago, and I vowed to never do it again. Uh, it may sound romantic and all that, but it's business travel, and it's not. It's, it's airports and taxis and, and all that kind of stuff, but um, I said, okay, I'll do, uh, I'll do a dozen stores, and, um, I'm, but I'm going to be home on the weekends, and uh, you know, it's going to be my schedule, so it's, it's not like I've been working you know, really hard. Uh, <laughs> After we picked the dozen stores, I get this email from Jamie, and she said, do you recall last year when you spoke at the book festival? And I said, yes, I had a great time. She said, do you recall us talking about trying to open a bookstore in Winston-Salem? And I said, I think I vaguely recall that conversation. She said, do you recall promising to come down here if I... I said, yes, I do recall that, and I'll be there. Uh, But let me finish June, so that's why I'm here tonight, and again, very happy to be here. Uh, the space is awesome. It looks great, feels great. Tell me about the space. What uh, what was it once before? 
So this was a car garage. So you can see that by the state of the floors, which we kept in their original form to keep the character of the building. The grease is still here, right? Yes, just sealed over. (laughs) So, um, and we kept the the windows and everything to try to keep some of the original character of the building. But um, yeah, it was a car garage. People would bring their cars right in where our front door is. I don't know how, but. Uh, so, so not a new car dealership, but a, a repair shop. Repair shop, yeah. yeah. What kind of cars? Uh, we heard some kind of foreign cars, but I haven't quite figured out. Which, I don't know cars. So, <laughs> so we're downtown cars. Winston-Salem. <laughs> um, was the building empty for a long time? It was. Um, when we first looked at this spot, we had looked at several different options downtown. We wanted to stay downtown, but the problem with being in any downtown is parking, of course. And we heard that was a number one request from our our people. We had to have good parking. So this space has a lovely parking lot in the back, which is great. Um, and it was shown to us, and it was not in a very pretty state when we originally saw it. And there were piles of wood and some moonshine and pickle jars and all kinds of it's weird good, things. Good moonshine? Yeah. Uh, I did not try any. I don't know if Charlie did. Uh, no. <laughs> well, speak, it, was, it was pretty scary the first time we saw it. It was. Well, speaking of booze, you got a, a brewery next door? We do, yeah. Foothills um, is a local brewery and pub, and they will have, um, by October, the space conjoining to us, which is another size, this size, and that will be event space, but we'll also connect through the front, which will be a cafe that will serve some food items, but most importantly, wine and beer. And Charlie, you're on the board, right? Uh, yeah, I'm on the board, and it's been an amazing journey. When I first joined the board of Bookmarks, we were an organization with two part-time employees working out of a basement of one of those part-time employees, trying to decide if there was any way we could ever have enough money that maybe we could have an office someplace that wasn't in somebody's basement. And so to have come from that uh, in just about four years uh, to this space, which was, you know, it's, it's been our dream to, to get to this point. Um, as, as Beth, our manager said earlier today, we're all still kind of running on adrenaline um, from, from Friday night and Saturday, just a, an amazing uh, weekend of welcoming people into this this space that is uh, we hope will feel like a gift to the community. So, uh, who owns the bookstore? Well, uh, we're a nonprofit organization, so I guess all bookstores are nonprofit. Right? That means we're Charlie. All bookstores are nonprofit. Is, is there a is there a lawyer in the house who can answer this question? Uh, I, I guess technically we were owned by the board of directors, right? Yeah, which yeah. you're president of. So, so if anything goes wrong. Uh, <laughs> I guess you know where the buck stops. <laughs> your, your name's on the bank loan, huh? <laughs> well, actually, there is no bank loan. This, because of the generosity of our community, uh, this entire space was able to open totally debt-free and with an operating reserve, um, which is an amazing thing. Yeah. So you, you solicited funds uh, as a nonprofit from, from other nonprofits or charities or individuals who... Who wanted to make donations? Yeah, we we did a fundraising campaign, and you know I've I've been in Winston Salem all my life, off and on. Um, and famously, Winston Salem uh, is the home of the North Carolina School of the Arts. And when the the state legislature decided they wanted to have the first uh, performing arts conservatory in the nation that was state funded, um, Winston Salem immediately the people in Winston Salem got together immediately came up with property, buildings, money. 
you know, within within 48 hours, they had put in a bid that was the successful bid. And we've seen it happen again and again in this community when there are people with energy and vision uh, who, who have an idea. There are, are people who will get behind that idea with their checkbooks and make it make it happen. And that's what happened um, here at Bookmarks. And you are, uh, Jamie, your official title here at the bookstore is? Operations Director. Does that mean you're the boss? Doesn't mean anything. It's, I think it's... <laughs> in a Operations non- Director is pretty vague. It's yeah. very vague, I think intentionally. But with a nonprofit organization, if you've ever been associated with one, it doesn't matter because for so long it, there were just two of us. So you just split tasks right down the middle and do whatever needs to be done, and that's pretty much what I still do. How many employees? Now we have three full-time employees, and we have nine part-time employees now. Okay. Who does the buying? I do. All of it? All of it. I picked out every book in the store (laughs) with our help from Mary Taylor Mann, our um, wonderful intern, and several requests from people in the community. We kind of solicited, what do you want to see in the bookstore? And that was really helpful. But that's often the most crucial part of a bookstore is is what do you buy? What do you stock? What's going what's gonna to sell? How many yeah. copies of a certain book? I mean, that's tough stuff. Even though you can return it, right. uh, return the unsold copies for credit, which is crazy in any kind of business, but that's the way bookstores operate. Um, buying is crucial. It is, and it's hard because in a bookstore, you don't get to set your own prices. I mean, I guess we could, but the margins are set from the publishers, so it's a little different than other retail Um, stores. So it's really like trying to rub a crystal ball and try to guess. I mean, you really can't. And and honestly, we won't know until we've been here for a while and see what our customers are really looking for. But having hosted so many events through the years in Winston-Salem, we have uh, sort of an idea of what our our community likes to read, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, how many titles are you going to have? Do you have a goal, or is is there a minimum? Is there a max? We started with ten thousand, though three thousand haven't showed up yet. So <laughs> they're they're hopefully in transit. And, and quite a few have sold since we opened a week ago, too. Right, <laughs> right. So I I think that was kind of our goal, and um and we'll just see how the space works. So Charlie, I, I was talking earlier to you. This is uh, the thirteenth stop, and uh, five of those stores. Are in North Carolina, yeah, and uh, that's because I live close by. It's it's convenient. I drove down from Charlottesville this morning to be here. Um, my daughter lives in Raleigh, and she uh, told me I was going to go to Quail Ridge, which is her favorite <laughs> yeah. store. Yeah, yeah, I didn't have a choice there, and uh, we we also have a place in Chapel Hill, so we're in, in Carolina a lot. But one of the cool things about what I've done with this tour is what I'm doing now, inviting local writers to come you know, uh, have a conversation and talk and talk about books and reading and writing, and but also take questions from the crowd. Um, and I've met so many um, writers from North Carolina. A lot of them I knew, uh, I knew before. Some I, some I didn't. I met Ron Rash the other day in Asheville. I met uh, Wiley Cash last uh, two weeks ago in, in Greensboro. And that's been really gratifying. It's also made me realize uh, how many writers are active in North Carolina. And I think the question for you is, do you see the store hosting a lot of signings and events with these writers? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think, I think we, have, we have a lot of ways in which we can contribute to the literary community. 
Um, and, and one way is to bring in authors from all over the country, maybe even all over the world, to connect with local readers and, and to inspire local readers and local writers. But, an, but another uh, way is to give opportunities to, to more local writers, whether they're here in Winston-Salem or in the Triad or throughout North Carolina. And, you know, I've been to a lot of these same bookstores that, that you're talking about, and especially, you know, early in the career, um, it's a really nice thing to have a, a McIntyre's or a Quail Ridge or a Malaprops or a Bookmarks to, um, you know, to help you along and to give you some publicity and give you an opportunity to share your work with, um, with a broader public. And one of the things about Bookmarks that, that makes us unique is that most people say, oh, I want to open a bookstore to sell some books. And then later on, they figure out, well, I could do some author events too. And that would, that would sell more books. We've been doing author events since, since we were born. Um, that's, that's what we do. We know how to do it. And so um, it really positions us in a unique way um, to make those events the best they can be. Is that we have a great space for it. We have great hospitality for our authors. Um, and, and we're good at, at bringing people in and, and selling books, too. And, and so it's a great way to lift up um, the authors in our, in our state. And there are a lot of great North Carolina writers. Right, especially now, uh, Jamie. Question for you on the, along the same line there, uh, as a, as a, a brand new bookstore, how do you get the attention of the publishers and convince them to send, you know, let's say big writers uh, your way? It's not easy, right? Well, apparently, you let Jill McCorkle know, <laughs> who then lets you know. <laughs> That I want them to come. I, I honestly don't know. We've we've had great success over the years um, with publishers and authors um, coming to our festival and doing some some one off events. So um, hopefully they they enjoy their time here in town, and um, hopefully we can provide a good event for them so that they tell their publishers that they had a good a good time. I also go to New York, um, try to go every spring and meet with the publishers um, privately to talk a little bit about what we do because people don't really understand what we do. We're a little different from a lot of other um, bookstores because we're a nonprofit organization first and foremost. A lot of it's word of mouth. I mean, over the years I've had a lot of writers, friends who would say, uh, uh, hey, I was in, you know, Phoenix or Wichita or someplace, you know, that you wouldn't really expect to have a great independent bookstore and they had a great time there at a store. It's been there for a long time, maybe a tiny store, maybe a big store. So the writers talk, the writers like to talk. And I'll have a writer, it's happened several times, will say a friend will send me an email and say, hey, just did a great festival, you know, could be here, it could be abroad, it could be, but you know, if you get, if you get a chance to do this festival, you need to go do it. So, I mean, the, the word's gonna spread. Once, once you get the store really up and running, and find the rest of your titles. <laughs> yes, that would help. Get, you know, get all your books for sale <laughs> here, okay? Then, then you can sell some books. Um, so, Charlie, a few, few minutes to talk about, uh, talk about your career and talk about uh, writing and reading and books. And um, I think you're the first writer I've had on, the, uh, on my show. I have a show. <laughs> <laughs> on my show, on the podcast. Uh, who started off as a as a collector, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. How'd that happen? Um, actually, my dad was a book collector. My dad came to Winston Salem in 1962 uh, to teach English at Wake Forest. Taught there for 40 years, and somewhere along the way, got interested in book collecting. And he was a what we call a single title collector. He collected Robinson Crusoe, which was a book that had been in print since it was published in 1719, 
constantly in print up to the present day. So, so by collecting that book, you're almost collecting a history of, of Western publishing in, in a lot of ways. Um, and his collection now is at Emory University in the rare book library there. Um, but so, as, so growing up as a child, I kind of got interested in this. And when I would travel, um, I would go to secondhand bookstores and look for copies of Robinson Crusoe, and which in those days, you couldn't go anywhere without falling over a secondhand bookstore. Um, and then as a young man, I decided I needed to start my own collection. And I had grown up in, in the, on rainy days in Winston-Salem, which in the fall we have a few of. We had these old records. I don't know where they came from. These old records, LPs of Cyril Richard reading Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. I uh, used to listen to. And there were skips on them. And, and the young people in the audience won't know what a skip on a record is. But those people who are my age will know. Um, I remember the first time I read that book as a book going, oh, that's what's at the end of that sentence, because I'd always heard the skips on the record. Yeah. So I, in my naivete, knowing nothing about Lewis Carroll or much about the history of the book, I thought, I'll collect different editions of Alice in Wonderland. There must be 20 or 30 of them. You know? And my, my wife will tell you there are a lot more than that. Uh, and then it turned out, as I, as I started to delve farther as the years went by, that, that Lewis Carroll, Charles Dodgson is his real name, was a very interesting guy who published lots and lots of other stuff. Most of it was crazy rare, so it made it really interesting to collect. Uh, and so now I've ended up with a, with a house full of old books that, 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 but that are not just a random assortment. They're, they're centered around um, an idea. Yeah. Have you ever traded like a, a story, a catalog, online, uh, Yeah, I, I actually had a, an antiquarian bookstore here in Winston-Salem back in the 1980s. For, we, were, we were in the catalog business for um, about 10 years, and we had a bookstore for about six years. And I got to tell you, I had a lot of flashbacks this last week getting helping get this store ready, you know, vacuuming and dusting. And I thought, wow, haven't I done all this before? Um, back in 1986. <laughs> but, um, but that was a lovely thing. And it was, I can remember driving down Hawthorne Road, I would drive by the bookstore. And I would just get this, this great feeling like I, I did that, I that bookstore is there because of me. And on on Saturday when we had our opening day here at Bookmarks, I was talking to one of our volunteers who was sitting outside the door as people were coming out. And she said, people keep coming out and saying, this is my bookstore. And I'll, that's and, and the idea that I remember having that feeling and the fact that we can have a space where everybody gets to share that feeling, uh, it, to me, is just great. Um, so I, I love being in the book business. It was, it, And then it was something that I kind of left behind for many years and suddenly it, came back and grabbed me when I started writing novels. <laughs> okay, I was going to ask you, at what point did you start writing? So I'd written nonfiction for a long time. I'd written a number of books about Lewis Carroll and about other um, other topics. I, I wrote what they call academic nonfiction, where a bestseller is something that sells 500 copies, all of which end up buried in the stacks of university libraries. Um, but I'd always wanted to write write long-form fiction, and I'd, I'd tried it many times. And the, the, when I finally had a book that, that sold and that was successful, um, it was when I did two things. It, the first thing I did was, you know, I'd gotten the MFA and done all this stuff, trying to write, you know, the great American novel. And so I stopped trying to write a great novel and stopped trying to be literary and just focus on telling a good story. And the other thing is I, I made that story about things that I personally cared about and was passionate about, which was old books and William Shakespeare and England and the English countryside and villages and, and that sort of thing. And I think those two, making those two decisions to just relax a little bit and to write about something I cared about is what made the difference for me. So the book, Book Must Tell was your first book? 
Bogus Tale was, was is, first novel. is the first book I wrote that anybody's ever heard of. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's it, all that's it all is, that counts, Charlie. I was the, I'm the only probably the only person whose debut novel was actually his 13th book, I think. But uh, <laughs> But that hit the, the big the big list as we say. That hit the big list, yeah. Okay. So here's here's a, here's a question I always like to ask guys who've hit the big list. Um, where were you when you got the phone call that your book had, was going to be on the New York Times? I was, I was in my daughter's apartment um, in Atlanta, Georgia, getting ready to do, I think, the second event. I'd done a, I'd done a book launch here with Bookmarks, um, which, by the way, Jamie reminded me the other day that my book launch for Bookman's Tale was the very first time that Bookmarks actually sold their own books. It was, our, it was an experiment to see, could we sell books? Um, so I'd done, I'd done that event here. I'd driven down to Atlanta. I was getting ready to go do an event in Atlanta. And suddenly I was like, I got all these phone messages. There's like from my agent and from, from Catherine Court at, at Penguin. I'm like, what's going on? And, and uh, I, so I got the voicemail from, from Catherine saying that it was, the book was going to be on the New York Times bestseller list. And uh, so I, when I did the event in, in Atlanta that evening, I, I played the voicemail on myself. I held it up to the, to the microphone. It's like, you guys got to hear this. You know? uh, so yeah, it was, that was an exciting day. I was at a bookstore. I was at Square Books, yeah. oh, Oxford, yeah. Mississippi, uh, actually having coffee with Richard Holworth, the owner, and we're just killing time. It was a rainy uh, afternoon in March of 1991. And um, the phone rang uh, on the wall. I guess it's an in-store phone. And, and he, Richard picked it up and he said, uh, I need to call you to call your wife because you, yeah. you have a phone call from New York. And so I called Renee and she said, um, congratulations. You're hitting the big list uh, this Sunday at number 12, I think, yeah. on the New York Times list. And uh, it's one of those moments where you think, you know, this is um, – publishing is always looking for new people. you got to have the new talent every year, yeah. you know, new writers, new exciting people to get, to get readers in the stores to, you know – Publishing has to have that, and so when you do come along as a new writer and hit the big list, as as we still like to say, it's a big deal. It's a big deal for you as a writer. It's a big deal for publishing, and you get a lot of attention, a lot more attention. Put it that yeah, way. Yeah. And so that was the beginning of, uh, you know, we didn't. I didn't know what was going to happen with the firm. Uh, the book was published in March. There was a lot of pressure behind it. There was a lot of buzz about it. There was a lot of uh, excitement about the story, but I wasn't sure if it was actually going to sell. And um, knowing that it was going to be on the list and get a lot of extra attention uh, <clears throat> really changed things. Once it happened, um, Doubleday went into high gear, and they, they pulled me back to New York City for the second uh, round of PR. And um, <clears throat> kind of a victory lap, you know, you get yeah. to um, – and but the, the second time around, uh, a big lucky break was to get on the Today Show with Bryant Gumbel, uh, because at that point, uh, Today Show was by far number one. It, it was the best show going. Bryant Gumbel was, uh, you know, he was on top. And so I did the interview with, uh, with Bryant, eight minutes, you know, of wow. uh, live TV, the longest eight minutes of my life. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Because you want to sound like you're somewhat, you know, intelligent and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you don't want to say something stupid. Um, but he was very good to me. And so we, we were going around doing P, uh, PR. Do, we were going to bookstores and in Manhattan and, and watching people buy the book. And it was very exciting. And um, 
we were having lunch one day. Remember the old Walton bookstores that were they were in every mall oh, yeah, yeah. and B. Dalton. Every mall, one end you had B. Dalton, next yeah. end you had uh, Walton books. And uh, that's kind of the bookstores I grew up with in the suburbs. Yeah, we didn't yeah. have we didn't have an old yeah. building like this, a great old bookstore. But but those bookstores played a role, and yeah. they they were they were they were pretty cool. And so we're having lunch in somewhere in New York, and there were some Walden book executives around the table. And the young man sitting next to me, we're just having a casual conversation. And I was a rookie; I didn't know what I was doing. I, you know, I, I couldn't believe I was there. And um, he made a statement that changed, it didn't change my life, but it, it radically altered my career. Just as a, as a throwaway statement, he said, um, oh, yeah, the, the big guys come out every year. And I said, you really? He said, yeah, look at the list. Stephen King, Tom Clancy, Michael Crichton, uh, Robert Ludlum back then, Sidney Sheldon. He said, the big guys come out every year. And I thought, well, you know. Hey, I want to be a big guy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but it stuck. And I hustled back home and uh, finished the Pelican Brief in like two months. You know, it was probably, ha- probably halfway finished. But I went into the office and shut the door and I said, I, you know, I'm getting this book finished so I can publish it the following year. And, um, and I did. And it, it, the Pelican Brief debuted at number one. Uh, in 19, 25 years ago. And so, what, what, what am I doing all the talk? What was the question about? Uh, we were talking about getting, uh, on, getting on the big list. But what the, the I, biggest, what the, I want to ask you is, so when you talked to Brian Gumbel, had he, had he read the book or had he been well briefed on it? Well, he had been so well briefed, I couldn't tell. Okay. I mean, he, because I've had, I've had those, TV, especially TV interviews where you got not eight minutes, you right. know, two minutes maybe, and you figure out in the first 10 seconds that not only have they not read the book, they don't know. I, I did one one time where in a 90-second interview, the guy asked me four times, well, wasn't writing a book about the rare book world really easy since he used to be an antiquarian bookseller? And I kind of, I mean, you want to say, if you're not on TV, you want to say, well, have you written a lot of novels about being a TV, you know, presenter? Um, but it's nice when you have somebody who, who, who has read the book or has been, has been well-prepared. It's a very different kind of uh, interaction, you know. I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't tell. He, he, he knew a lot about it. Uh, at the same time, back then, NBC was doing a lot of the Today Show was was a leader in doing authors. This yeah. was 25 yeah. years yeah. ago, and so they had a lot of authors coming through. Uh, now it's very difficult on morning television. Yeah, uh, the three networks or uh, even cable to get on as an author. They, yeah. they just don't want you know they don't have time for you except for CBS. And I started doing CBS a few years ago uh, because it's the best you know, early morning TV show, in my opinion. But Gail King, by the time I got there, every year, Gail King has not only read the book, she's got pages of notes, uh, yeah. and she'll come in the green room when I'm uh, trying to drink my coffee and, you know, to hang out or whatever, and she's got between, during commercial breaks, she's got a list of questions about the book. Why did I do this? Why did I do that? I mean, she she works me over before I even get on the set. Yeah. <laughs> and then you go to the set, and it's really a cool format, the way Charlie Rose, yeah, Gail yeah. King, Nora Donnelly sit around, all three of them, and it's not scripted, and they're all firing questions at you. And it's all good-natured. Uh, Charlie tries to be a tough guy. You know, he's from North Carolina, by the way. Yeah, he is. He, he's a dookie. And um, <laughs> but, but, I didn't mean that the way it sounded. <laughs> Like, come on, we, we remember Charlie Rose. When, remember when Charlie Rose used to just be on North Carolina public television? That was the only place you could see him? Yeah, yeah. But he's, he, he'll try to hit the, with the tough questions, and he, oftentimes Charlie 
you know, for years, before we went on to the morning show, the Charlie Rose Hour, uh, I did that a couple times. Um, the first time I did Charlie Rose was 20 years ago. For a whole hour, I never said anything. <laughs> and they said, how'd it go? And I said, oh, he did all the talking. Huh? He, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so the next year, we, we were kidding about it because we're, we're, we're good, pretty good friends now. And um, I said, Charlie, you know, they tell me that this year I'm supposed to say something. So <laughs> if you ask me a question, just give me a minute and I'll, I'll give you a response to it. But, uh, but that show uh, really sold books. Yeah. Because he had read the book. Yeah. He had read that book, the book before, and he was up on the subject matter, and he was very well prepared. And it's Charlie Rose, that show still sells books. There aren't many shows uh, that can do that. Um, we lost a great one last year when Diane Rehm yeah. retired, yeah. NPR. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that If you could get on that show, it was a big deal because she had three million you know, listeners around the world. Yeah. And they bought books. It was a big deal. And, and and some of those shows, they you know, you really did. You would have time for a conversation. It's a, it's a strange thing to to spend months or even years writing a novel that you're hoping that somebody will spend what twelve, fifteen, twenty hours reading, and yet have to try to convince them to do that in you know a ninety second soundbite on a TV or a radio interview. Um, how do you, how do you, if, if it took me 250 pages to say what I had to say, how am I supposed to tell you about it in, in 90 seconds? It's, it's, it's a funny thing about this business, uh, that, that you have to try to find a way to condense your idea, you know? Okay. Let's talk about, let's talk about your ideas. Um, describe your, your, your process. I've, I've asked every other writer sure. so far sure. along, along the way, um, you know, when do you write? How do you write? Um, how do you go about it? So, um, my process starts out with a period that I would describe as thinking, uh, which, I mean, it continues throughout. But, I, you know, I talk to students a lot, and they think that writing, you're not writing unless you have a computer in front of you or a pencil or a pen in your hand. And, in fact, writing for me begins with just a lot of imagining and, and, and thinking. And, and I'll take a lot of notes and I'll try to sort of slowly develop characters in my, in my mind. So before I really start writing a draft, I don't... I haven't fully outlined the story. I don't know everything that's going to happen, but I'm at least acquainted with my characters. I know basically where I'm going. I, I, I have a decent idea of the ending, even if I don't know the stations along the way. Um, and, uh, and then I, I start, to, start to bang out the first draft. And for me, how quickly I bang out the first draft depends on how often I'm doing stuff like this. Um, when I'm done with what I'm doing next weekend, I've got like, how what do we got like five or six weeks until the festival and I got nothing to do but, but work on the next book during that time period. Um, right now I've been like catching a bit here and a bit there. I've got like 15,000 words by festival time. I'll have enough of a first draft that it's starting to feel like a first draft. You know, um, if I have nothing else to do, I can knock out a first draft in about three or four months. Um, and then comes the, the fun part, which is, um, is revising. Uh, I, I try to, if I'm working on a first draft, I try to get up and write, first thing in the morning or else right, right after I run, if it's a day that I'm going to take a run, uh, and just, just get going on it. Um, if I'm, if I'm really into it, then I'm trying to do 2000 words a day. You uh, really, you said you enjoy revisions. I do. Um, how about copy editing? Well, yeah, I don't mind That's copy painful. editing. I, I really don't. Um, it, because I think part of it is I feel like, um, that I'm on this team of people that's trying to make a good book. 
and I get to be the only person whose name is on the front cover of it. So, you know, pretty lucky. Um, and so I've never really seen the editorial relationship as adversarial. I've always seen it as, as people trying to make my book the best that it can be. My, my most recent novel, I thought we were done with rewrites uh, with The Lost Book of the Grail. And then on a Friday afternoon, usually this stuff happens in the email, but on a Friday afternoon, this package lands on my doorstep with the whole printout of the manuscript and a four-page letter from my editor saying, why don't we try this, 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 and this? And I come inside, and I was like, oh, man. And, and Janice said, what's wrong? I said, oh, they're going to make me do more rewrites. And she said, look, it's a Friday afternoon. Just put it away. Worry about it on, on Monday morning. So I kind of listened to her advice. I put it away, and I looked at it on Saturday morning. <laughs> and I read the letter again. And on Saturday morning, I'm like, this is great. These are such good ideas. This is going to make this book so much better. And it was, you know, like it was two or three weeks worth of work. It wasn't, it wasn't horrible. So, um, yeah, I like I like being at that point where I have I have the thing to work on. It's a lot easier to to make a better book out of a three hundred page first draft than it is to make a three hundred page first draft out of a bunch of blank paper. You know. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree, and and I don't like the editing or the copy editing or the copy copy editing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but or, or the finding the things that you missed in copy editing after the book comes out. <laughs> that happens, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you see it there's a mistake people will uh, will copy a page of a novel yeah. with a misspelled word or something and send it to me like ha ha, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Like it's my fault, I, you know? Sometimes I almost feel we should intentionally put a mistake in there because readers take so much joy in pointing it out to us, you know? Oh, gosh. In the firm, uh, I had this uh, scene of, uh, dealing with uh, sailboats and harbors and getting at something. I, I don't do boats, okay? I don't, I, you know, I'm not a water guy. Um, and um, I made some reference to blue buoy lights. Oh, yeah, which they're, exists they're nowhere, which yeah. exists nowhere in the world. Okay, <laughs> and so the letters started coming. You know, this is back when I had time to kind of read the, the mail. It's it's hard to read now, and um, and some of these people were really indignant. You know, because they had caught me obviously in a mistake, and and my publisher said, um, "Well, we can change it. You know, from blue to red," and I said, "Nah, let's leave it the way it is." I had I had a character walking into Paddington Station in 1856, and I said he walks into the steel and glass enclosure of Paddington Station. And a friend of mine in England wrote me, and he goes, "I'm pretty sure it's wrought iron." I was like, "Oh man, should have looked it up." <laughs> I wrote a scene in the Pelican Brief that took place on the ninth floor of the uh, Four Seasons Hotel in Georgetown. On the ninth floor, they only have seven. <laughs> <laughs> And the Washington Post really had fun with that one. <laughs> how, so how serious are you about your research? Um, you know, I really enjoy the research. I guess part of it is because I did spend a lot of years writing nonfiction, and I still write some nonfiction. So to me, um, the, the research is, it's like a puzzle. It's I, um, writing a, it's because a lot of my novels, all my novels have some sort of historical component. And so sometimes the research is as simple as trying to figure out where did the trolley cars run in New York City in 1906? You know, and sometimes it's a little more complicated than that. But to me, it's it's like putting together a puzzle, and I I sometimes have a tendency to sort of overdo it because I I, I want to obsessively be sure that she's walking underneath the L tracks at the right place, you know. And so I spend 
two hours on the internet trying to find the answer to a question to, to write one sentence um, that, that, that a reader is probably never going to know. But, I, but I, I enjoy being plunged into a world that feels real. And so for me, by doing the research on the historical parts, I feel like I have a better chance at making that world feel real. Now, having said that, the first scene of your book is set in the Firestone Library in Princeton, where I've worked many times. And John said he's never been to the Firestone Library, he's seen the Firestone Library. And the that's, scene, how, that's how thorough my research and, is. No, but the, but the scene, I mean, it, feel, it feels very real to me, you know. And so I think the lesson to me there was that, you know, you can research on the Internet or at your wonderful Wake Forest University Library or your public library, or you can research in, in your imagination. And those are both important parts of that, of the process, I think. Support for Book Tour with John Grisham comes from Audible. They quietly removed all their stuff from the room, turned off the lights, and left. Mark and Jerry got into a pickup truck, a fancy club cab leased and driven by Denny. And they followed Trey and the van out of the parking lot, onto the street, then back onto the interstate. They skirted the northern edge of the Philadelphia suburbs and, using state highways, disappeared into the Pennsylvania countryside. Near Quakertown, they found the country road they had chosen and followed it for a mile until it turned to gravel. There were no houses in the area. Trey parked the van in a shallow ravine, removed the stolen license plates, poured a gallon of gasoline over their bags filled with tools, cell phones, radio equipment, and clothing, and lit a match. A fireball was instant, and as they drove away in the pickup, they were confident they had destroyed all possible evidence. If that story from John Grisham's Camino Island made you feel something, hear what an entire Audible book can do. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by visiting www.audible.com slash Grisham. That's audible.com slash Grisham. By the way, um, I've never been to the Firestone Library, and I deliberately stayed away from it uh, with this book because I didn't want to inspire, you know, some people to, you know, pull off or try to do something like I've described. Uh, And so before the book came out, I thought we should at least contact uh, the good folks at Princeton and uh, see if they have a sense of humor. And... uh, (laughs) Tell them what's coming. You know, th- this book's about to be published, and it's going to... There's some things you might want to lock up in your some, library. You, you may, <laughs> may want to change your security procedures. And, um, of course, the lawyer said, no, no, no. Don't, don't contact them. Just let it let it ride. Let the book come out. We'll If they want to contact you, if they're upset, whatever, uh, you'll know it. We'll know it. You, the, the, there's, no, there's no lawsuit. They can't do anything about it. It's all fair game. I said, sure. My lawyers are very good. So we didn't say anything. And so um, a month has gone by since publication. Yeah. It's published on June the 6th. And, um, you know, my, I would ask my publisher, you guys heard anything? Have you heard anything? And uh, so finally we got a letter from Princeton you know, two days ago from the library at Princeton. And a very nice letter from the librarian uh, inviting me to come to campus and uh, talk about the book. Nice. And, nice. Uh, yeah. and I said, uh, sure, I'll be there. Uh, how, can I, how can I resist that? And at the very bottom, I said, P.S., could I at least take a look at the Fitzgerald manuscripts? I promise not to try and snatch them. Right. 
So I'll be going to Princeton sometime soon for it should be a really fun. Yeah, that's, a that's funny. Great. It's, I mean, it is a fantastic library. Uh, and what, the, what were you doing there? Uh, I was doing Lewis Carroll research there. There was a guy named uh, Morris Parrish back in the 1920s and 30s who was one of the great um, American book collectors of what was the golden age of American book collecting. And he collected uh, all the Victorian writers, all, you know, Dickens and Trollope and George Eliot and Lewis Carroll and just all, all the way through the, the whole list and gave his collection to Princeton. So they have one of the, you know, phenomenal collections, not just of Lewis Carroll, but of, but of all of those um, Victorian novelists. Uh, you said something a while ago that uh, spurred a question. Your father had an extensive collection of uh, Robinson Crusoe. Yeah. And it ended up at Emory University. That's right. You couldn't prevent that? Uh, well, so we, we have a long family connection at Emory, and on, on both sides of my family, on the father's side and, the, and, the, and my mother's side. Um, they also have, they have a really large, fine, well-established uh, rare book room that gets used a lot by scholars, and I think he, he wanted that as well. He got his PhD there. Um, my mom got her, my mom was in the first, uh, graduating class, uh, undergraduate class that had women at, at Emory. Um, my daughter, my wife went to Emory, my, our daughter went to Emory. And when, when she applied, there was a thing that said, um, do you have any previous family members that have attended Emory university? And when I was born, there was a thing in the back of the Emory alumni magazine that said, here's a little baby who should come to Emory one day. And it listed everybody on my mother's side and my father. So I gave that to Jordan and she put it on her, her application, like, you know, going back to 1840 or something, the people who had gone to Emory. I don't think that's why she got in. She's, smart young woman but um but she got in but she got in and she, she went to emory and our our uh previously mentioned uh intern mary taylor mann is starting her phd program at emory uh here in the fall so so we have we have good connections um but between my family and between bookmarks uh, and emory so i've been down there a couple times since the since the collection went down there had a really nice meeting with the uh, uh with the rare book librarian but they're the the first thing they ever had in that library that sort of created a, a, a special a, a rare book collection uh, was uh, my great grandfather's book collection. He was just he collected sort of highlights. And when the Bookman's Tale came out, I was on tour and the the librarian, the rare book librarian, called me up. He said, "You want to come over and play show and tell?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure." So we went over there and he pulled some stuff out. And Janice is looking at um, the first edition of Frankenstein where she, she was assigned to read this book, you know, 50 yards from where we were sitting. And he pulls out the Nuremberg Chronicle, which was the first great illustrated book. It's from about 1496. It's not as rare a book as you would think it would be. There's about a thousand copies, I think, that, that survived. But it's a fantastic book, this huge book with woodcuts on every page. And, and my novel is all about provenance, about how books move from one owner to the next. And so I said, David, do you know anything about the history of this copy? Do you know where it comes from? And he kind of gets this little grin on his face. He goes, yeah, that was your great-grandfather's copy. <laughs> and I was like, okay, fair enough. You know? <laughs> Let's talk about uh, the movement of rare books. You just mentioned that. When I jumped into um, Camino Island, uh, it's about stolen manuscripts, and it was going to be about stolen books. And I realized, by the way, I have yet to meet anybody who will confess to dabbling in the uh, stolen rare book market. Right. Do you know anybody like that? I don't know anybody personally, but I know that they're that they're out there because there have been there have been some very famous scandals. There was one there was one guy who who stole books just not for profit. Just he 
stockpiled them in a in a house. He just enjoyed it, and he still saw like he went to Duke and 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 usually if libraries, university libraries are are reaching a milestone in terms of numbers of books, they'll make it special. So he stole their two millionth book, <laughs> like you know that they had made a big deal of. We're going to buy this famous rare book as our two millionth book. He he stole that. I mean, the FBI years later still trying to figure out who all the books belong to. So they're out there. Yeah, Richard Howorth, who owns Square Books, I already mentioned his name. It's a friend of mine. He caught the guy. Um, outside of his store in Oxford, Mississippi, uh, the, the bookstore in Memphis and the bookstore in Jackson, and again, these, are, these guys are all friends, uh, had some books missing. Yeah. And they, they figured out, I, fig- I forget how they knew, the guy was kind of a regular who, who had been in the store. He had a special coat made with pockets oh, to, yeah. to stuff yeah. books in, and a bunch of books were missing. And um, so Richard, I think, saw him come into the store, watched him carefully, the guy got some books, and he left, and he, he confronted him outside. And the guy, the guy was, of course, denying everything. And he had, his, his coat was stuffed with, you know, first editions. And as he was uh, denying everything, a first edition fell out of his coat onto the sidewalk. Yeah. And uh, so they got the guy, arrested him. But they, again, with stolen books, they're, they're you know, they're numerous copies of every book and you can't yeah. look at a book and say that book was stolen yeah, it's un- a, unless it's marked with somebody's uh, some identification yeah. somewhere it's it's a tricky thing and now the 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 more valuable the book the more likely it is you'd be able to identify it um so i did bring a book with me today because i i thought i thought john should get to see a rare book so so this is the first edition of alice in wonderland there's 22 copies of this book on the whole planet and we know where all of them are and so if, if one of you gets your hands on this, I'm going to be able to track it down, down pretty quickly. Um, but so here, you get to hold, hold a rare book there. Um, is this a gift? There's six of them. Yeah. That, <laughs> but now, having, thanks, Charlie. This is wonderful. Having said that, having said that, there's a copy of this book that disappeared out of Christ Church College in Oxford in the 1950s and has never yeah. resurfaced. And we don't know if somebody just innocently you know, took it home to their child and it got chewed up, chewed to death, or if it's sitting in somebody's book collection. We just, we don't know. It's How, how do you know that they're... I'm just going to move this over here. <laughs> For those of you at home, there was a rare book that just moved across. <laughs> how do you know there are 20, only 22 editions in the world? Well, you know, because it's such a rare book, this was a book that was suppressed by the author immediately on publication. He decided it wasn't, the quality of printing was inferior. So there was only about 50 copies that were bound up originally. So it was a, it was a rare book in 1865 when it, when it didn't come out. Um, and so starting as early as the 1950s, there were uh, scholars and collectors trying to, trying to do a census of, of all the copies. Um, and it's now such a notoriously rare book that if, if there were a new copy that were to surface, um, you know, it would almost certainly show up at a dealer or at an auction house or someplace, and we, we would know about it. Uh, By the way, uh, I'm not sure we we covered this. Uh, when I spoke at the book festival here last September, I met Charlie for the first time, and we started talking about what we like to talk about, rare books and stolen <laughs> books and things like that. And I was already working on Camino Island, and uh, so I contacted him right after I got home. We started emailing back and forth, and <laughs> I, I sort of... Um, uh, quietly ask him the question, so how much do you know about stolen rare books? Yeah. <laughs> and he knows nothing, okay? He, I got nowhere. But he, he knew a lot about books and rare books and, and was, a, was a big help uh, to me um, writing a book. That's, yes, what I, that's, that, fun. that's what I normally do when I, when I write a book is to find people like Charlie who know what they're talking about and, um, 
strike up a friendship and have some fun yeah. And, and, yeah. and get a lot of free advice from them. And uh, that's, I mean, I think that's, it's true. That's one of the things, one of the nice side effects of, of researching a book, because you, you could always need to know stuff that you don't know, um, is the people that you meet and the, and the friendships that you make. We, we have a friend who just a few days ago retired after a long career as the presenter of Norwich Cathedral in England. It means he's the person, he's the clergyman who's responsible for planning every service that happens in that cathedral, more than a thousand a year. Um, and my my new novel, Lost Book of the Grail, is set in an English cathedral. Well, every time I had a question about some arcane little bit of what do you call this or where did that come from or what do they wear for this service or who lights the candles or whatever, I would, I would put it up on Facebook and I would tag Canon Jeremy, and within five minutes he would he would answer the question. And I thought I was like, "Don't you have a cathedral to run? What are you doing on Facebook all the time?" But it's but it's marvelous to yeah to have those people who can who can help out with with those those little things that um, you know that you need to again to give you that verisimilitude. Yeah, I read that book and I really enjoyed it. And 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 uh, right off the bat, you realize that you're really into that stuff. I mean, you really, you're into cathedrals and squires and all this kind of stuff. I mean, big time, right? Yeah. Somebody said, well, how, how long did you spend researching the, the whole, you know, what cathedrals are like? Because the book is, is cassette, set in a cathedral, and it also goes back to, to Saxon times and works its way forward. And, you know, I, the, I walked into my first cathedral as a high school student in 1980 uh, in England and, and have been going back ever since. And so so a lot of the sort of life in a cathedral and what it looks like architecturally and everything else was just, I didn't have to research it cause I'd, cause I'd been doing it, but it's also set in a cathedral library and Janice and I had a great experience going over to the cathedral library at Worcester cathedral. Uh, and we, we'd signed up for a tour. So we thought that meant like, you know, 15 or 20 people going on a tour. It was just the two of us with this one librarian, um, for about an hour and a half. And she would pull these books, these manuscripts, these, thousand-year-old books off the shelf and just flip through them and go, look at this. This is really cool right here. Look at this piece of graffiti. And, you know, I, I got more stuff for the novel out of that hour and a half than out of any other you know, 10 days of, of reading books in a library. You know. Are you going to get away from this subject matter? I mean, are you, can you see, you see yourself writing about other? Well, the book I'm starting to work on right now is kind of the other end of the literary spectrum. I mean, I'm still writing about old books, but I started out writing about William Shakespeare and Jane Austen. And this book is set in the world. It's set in New York City in the early 20th century, a lot of it, uh, in, the, in the, the world of one of the great publishing successes in, in all of history, which was the, the children's series book. They were looked down upon by librarians and teachers. They, they wouldn't allow them in the libraries because they were considered just too lowbrow to be real literature. And yet they sold hundreds of millions of copies. I bet every one of you is in here has read Nancy Drew or the Hardy Boys or Tom Swift or one of those. Ed, no, no less a person than Ed Wilson, I discovered recently, one of our most erudite person in Winston-Salem, has a whole wall of these books left from his childhood, Bomba the Jungle Boy. And, all. and so I thought, you know, the generations of people were were raised on these books, and yet they're sort of looked down upon by the literary establishment. And the story of how these books came to be written um, is is really fascinating. And so I'm I'm kind of delving into that world. So it's still it's still a book about books and about old books, but it's it's uh, not the highbrow literary stuff of Shakespeare and Jane Austen. It's it's good old you know Tom Swift and, and that crowd. Do you have a deadline? I do not have a deadline, uh, but I would like to. I'd like to get something to my editor by 
the end of winter. You know, that's, yeah. that's kind of that's kind of the deadline that's in my head. Yeah, yeah. you should have a deadline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. They, they, if, a, writer if, with, a writer without a deadline if, is a dangerous if person. Jamie, if Jamie and Beth will let me go home and write a little bit and stop vacuuming, then maybe I can, I can get some work done. Let me bounce back. Uh, I thought this while ago. You were talking about um, stolen books. You sent me the link of the story. Uh, this is last year. We are going back and forth email, and you sent me the link of the, re- the heist in London, the yeah. big one. Uh, they, they dropped down through like yeah. Tom Cruise yeah. in the it, ceiling. It really, and, it, was, it was high tech. There was, I don't know how they even knew, this was right before the London Antiquarian Book Fair. And so, so book dealers come from all over the world to, to exhibit at this, this. It's probably the, the biggest and sort of most expensive book fair. As an example, I, I was there last year and um, I'm walking along and there's a, there's a Shakespeare, a third folio of Shakespeare, um, like 75,000 pounds or something like that, you know, excessively rare third folio, rarely seen on the market. And then you walk about another 30 feet and there's another third folio. There were three of them in the same room. So, uh, but somebody found out where, what warehouse a dealer had had his stock shipped to. And, and yeah, came like, like paratrooper down in from the roof of the warehouse and got, uh, got, I think they said a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of, worth of rare books, which, which for the London end, I mean, that could be, Ten bucks. It doesn't yeah. doesn't have, didn't have to be a lot of stuff because it's as I said these are all you know pretty pretty high end stuff. Uh, and I'm not I didn't read if that ever got recovered. I was going to ask you had the crime been solved? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. It's funny when when they when they do get solved if you're writing about them. Um, there's a there's a cup in Wales called the Nantios Cup. It's this wooden we think probably medieval cup, but it was considered and is still considered by some people to be a candidate for the Holy Grail. Um, and it, it works into my novel and it had been stolen. And the fact that it had been stolen worked into the novel. And a few months before the novel was published, I was driving into London to visit my London publishers. And I hear on the news, they go, uh, the Gloucestershire police have recovered the Nantios cup. I was like, Oh man, I got to rewrite that whole section now. <laughs> you know? Uh, we've got a few minutes to, uh, Take questions from you guys if you um, would like to toss one up here. Uh, we we give great answers to good questions. <laughs> Anybody? Yes, ma'am. Uh, the question is, how was a time to kill initially received? Uh, not very well. A time to kill flopped. Uh, they printed uh, 5,000 hardback copies, and we couldn't sell those. <laughs> The follow-up question is, uh, what, what, how do I explain the success of A Time to Kill after the publication of The Firm? And um, I think a lot of people just finally noticed A Time to Kill and, and saw the brilliance. And uh, <laughs> when, when, it, when The Firm came out in uh, March of 91, people realized there was an earlier book. And uh, so there, and there were, suddenly there were no copies of it. When, when I was signing books early on in March of 91, I could go in bookstores around, in the, around the Memphis and Jackson area down there, and there would be copies of A Time to Kill, uh, you know, old dusty copies over there for sale, untouched. And those disappeared real fast. And, um, and so they're, they're still pretty rare. As book collectors, we, we love it when you have an author who does well, but his first book was a flop. Because it means you got a great collector's item. So, so when when John was trying to come up with lists of of rare books to include in Camino Island, 
I tried to convince him that he should put A Time to Kill <laughs> as, as one of the valuable books that this guy was, was adding to his collection. Because it is, it's, it's an expensive book now. Yeah, I mean, you, that was in an email. You include, you include your own book in, 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 in the Camino Island, in, in, your, in your next novel. And, uh, but I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't do that. Um, but no, no, it's just that there was, there was suddenly the man, the man was there, the book... The book got uh, recognized. People realized it was a very different type of book uh, from the firm. And, you know, it's gratifying that 20, almost 30 years after it was published, it's, it's now the best-selling of all my books. Uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 those first few books, because of the movies that were made, uh, Time to Kill, Firm, Pelican Brief, Client, uh, Rainmaker, uh, not so with The Chamber, because The Chamber was not a good movie, and nobody went to see it. And I was secretly happy nobody went to see it, because it, uh, I didn't like the screenplay. But those movies um, are are somewhere on television tonight, being recycled and, and enjoyed by a lot of people. And they still sell a lot of books. That's what people don't realize, is you, when you see a when you see a good movie come out based on a, a popular novel, just watch the bestseller list. That novel is going to come back in paperback or trade paperback, sometimes all the way to number one, and sit there for a long time. And we realized that big time uh, early on. And I'd like to have all of them filmed, <laughs> adapted. Wouldn't, wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all? Yeah. <laughs> Questions? Yes, ma'am. Great question uh, to both of us. Um, what what do we read? Or I guess how, how many how many books do we read a month uh, normally? How many books do we read a month when we're actually writing? And uh, what do you like to read? You go. Um, I read a lot of ARCs called advanced reading copies um, because publishers will send them to me wanting me to um, do a blurb for the back cover. And usually they're sending me books that they think are going to appeal to Charlie Lovett, you know. And, and so I also read arcs for events that we're going to do at Bookmarks. Um, so actually, well, I read Camino Island in manuscript and then also in the, the published book. But um, so, so a lot of my reading is driven by what's going on at Bookmarks and in the publishing world over the next. And then it's also driven by my, my research. So right now I'm actually reading a book for pleasure. I'm reading Nina George's new book. Having said that, I blurbed her last book and she blurbed my last book, so there's a reason I'm reading her new book. Um, okay, stop right there. Stop right there. We're, two, we're writers, okay? We're not yeah, publishers. Yeah. We're not yeah. agents. We're not editors. Uh, do you really think blurbs have an impact? Um, I, think, I don't think they have an impact for John Grisham. I think, you, I think you're going to do all right. Um, but... I think the fact that there's going to be a John Grisham blurb on the paperback of the Lost Book of the Grail is not going to hurt. No, I mean, I, no, I, I think they, I think for for new for new writers who are new to a market and for for mid-listers, I think they are somewhat helpful. Um, they, my relationship with bookmarks has has been great for me because when my first book came out, they said, "Who can we send this to to request a blurb?" And I'm like, "I have no idea." And now they ask me, and I, it's like. Well, the six people that I interviewed at Bookmarks last year, that could be the people, you know. Um, so I think, it, I think it makes some difference. I don't think it's a deal breaker. How often do you blurb? Um, <laughs> maybe three or four times a year. Yeah. yeah. About the same here. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I get a lot of the ARCs. Uh, they come in, you know, by the truckload. Sure. Um, and, and the, you know, most of them 
look good. They're, they're books I would like yeah. to I would like to yeah. read. You get a sneak peek. You could do it. You know, six months before the book comes out, or three months. And you know, I pick up a lot of them and start them, and with with the intention of, of getting into the book and uh, and finishing the book. And usually, I put them down for some reason and uh, get busy doing something else. I I, yeah. I, I rarely. I rarely finish a book anymore, which is kind of frustrating. Yeah. Uh, so, um, anyway, next question. Yes, ma'am. If I picked one of my book as a favorite, um, somebody, a reporter said it earlier, I'd never thought about this. It's kind of like picking your favorite child. Uh, <laughs> probably not a good, good thing to do. Um, you have to love them, to create them, to, to write them, to publish them. You have to love them. Uh, I can't imagine writing a book all the way through and publishing and not liking that book and are those characters. I mean, it happens. It really happens. That's true. Yeah. I, uh, I had people say to me, your characters are likable. I'm like, if they weren't likable, I couldn't spend that amount of time with them. But I think, to, to you know, Kate DiCamillo said the same thing. You said, pick your favorite child. To me, my answer is, if it's if it's not the book I'm working on right now, then I need to work harder. Because I, I, need, I need to believe that what I'm doing is that I'm moving forward and that, I'm, that each book is, is going to be better. So I start, same thing, I start every book with one goal. Well, two goals. First of all, to entertain, okay, and to make this book right now the best book I've ever written. Okay, that's what drives me, that's my motivation every time. By the time I write a book in six months, go through all of the, revisions, editing, you know, draft after draft after draft. Um, I'm really tired of it. Uh, and I've never gone back and read one of my books. So it's really hard for me to say. I read, I'm sorry, I read, um, I read um, the short story collection for the audio, yeah. which I'll never do again. Uh, they had me backed up in a sound booth for yeah, four straight days. So you, yeah. you, don't know, you don't know what day it is, and I lost my voice. Um, Plus, reading for audio takes a certain amount of a manner of, uh, you know, dramatic talent. Okay, it's an art, of yeah. which I have yeah. none. Okay, I, I, I'm not an actor, and uh, it's it's interesting to hear the actors who do read and they do the different voices and they yeah. remember the yeah. different voices and they keep all these balls in the air. And I thought, you know, what am I doing uh, trying to read one of my own novels? It, it's and, a strange experience to listen to. Have you done have, yours? Have you, no, I haven't. But have you listened to the audio books that other people have done of yours? Well, what they do. Because it's kind of surreal. They'll you know? send me samples of actors. Yeah. yeah and I'll listen yeah. to those. But no, for the same reason, I can't go back and read. Or I can't. I, I don't go back and read my books. I don't want to go back and listen to them either. Right. You know? right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done with them and I'm moving on. Long-winded answer to your very good question. Yeah. Uh, if I had to pick a, at gunpoint, pick a favorite book, <laughs> it would be A Time to Kill because uh, it was the first. It's a sentimental favorite, yeah. and it's very autobiographical in many ways because I was living that life 30 years ago as a young lawyer you know, in a small southern town, dreaming of the big trial. So that was kind of me and my family and friends, and so that's, that's uh, having said that, I've never gone back and read it. I can't imagine doing that. Yes, ma'am. Let me answer the first part first before I forget it, okay? Uh, the, the question is, once, once we finish a book, uh, how long before that book is published, okay, from the day it's submitted? Well, my schedule is this. Uh, I start writing a, a new legal thriller every year on January the 1st. I'm going to write something with the goal of finishing by July the 1st, six months. 
Okay, uh, I'm often early by a week or two. I'm often late by a week or two, but that's it. It's, it's a very serious deadline, and that's what you need, okay? You need yeah. a serious budget. <laughs> Charlie, you need a deadline. So if I turn the book in, say, by July the 1st, uh, I'm going to spend the next month to six weeks with revisions, editing, copy editing, back and forth, doing things like approving the author photo, which I hate to be photo photographed. I just hate to sit for. So I'll pick up. I'll, I'll try to find a photograph somebody else took for for an interview or something, and you know, buy that photograph. Um, writing the, the flap copy for your book, writing the you know the, these things that go into the author's note, all the stuff that goes into it. It's back and forth to New York. I'll finish that by. Um, I'm going through it now. I'll finish at the middle of August, and then um, after Labor Day. Uh, the book's all done. It goes to press. They start printing books, and it'll be published on October 24th of this year in time for the Christmas market. Uh, 30% of all books are sold at Christmas time, yeah, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. So years ago, I moved from my March 1 publication that I loved because there was nothing else going on in bookstores, and I thought they loved it too, uh, to the Christmas crush where everybody else comes out in September, October, November. So that's my schedule. That is, I'll be honest with you, that is a very, very rapid, compressed yeah. schedule. Yeah. Uh, but because we do it every year, Doubleday's geared up for it, yeah. and they know what's coming. I tell Doubleday every year in January, uh, I'll say, uh, yeah, I have a story. Yeah, it's a, it's a go for this year. And to me, it all goes back to the story. If I have a story, and one of these days I'm going to get to January, I'm going to say, I'm sorry, I don't have a story right now. You know, maybe I'll take a year off or whatever. But if I have a story and I'm ready to go uh, January, they plan their entire year based yeah. on that, you know, assurance. And off we go. And, you know. and publishers have, a, you know, they, they have a list for each season. And so they're going to have a John Grisham slot every year. They're not going to have a reserved Charlie Lovett slot every year. <laughs> he, he ain't quite there yet. Um, so for me, um, I would say from the time I send the manuscript, or the from the time my agent sends the manuscript to the publisher, and the publisher says, "Yeah, we'll this we'll take this one," until it comes out has been anywhere from a year to a year and a half, depending on on where the list was and where and how close we were to the previous book that came out. And you know, there's the one year I had the Christmas book, and so that kind of threw things back a little bit. So um, they, they when my first book was in production. Um, my editor said, you know, we think this is going to do well. We definitely want a second book and we definitely want it as quick as you can get it to us. And then after I'd done three, they were like, okay, you, we think you can slow down a little bit now, you know, <laughs> but she didn't, she should have said, you still have a deadline though. No. So apparently it's so. We have time for one more question. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, the two part. I said, what's the second part? What do we do on the date of publication? The question is, what do we do when, when a book is published on, on pub date? Um, what do you do? I have a big event at Bookmarks. I mean, I've done that for every one of my one of my books. The last one, the the Lost Book of the Grail, because it was set in a church. We had it at at St. Tim's, but we've also done um, events at Summit School. I hope when my next book comes out, will be right here. Uh, although we had 250 people at the last launch, so we might have to go next door. But um, but yeah, we we have a launch party at Bookmarks. So, do you have any other rituals like Stephen King? Every time he finishes a book, he smokes a cigarette. He quit smoking years ago, but he, he smokes one cigarette. I thought, that's, that's some really hell-raising, you know? Uh, yeah. 
Crazy Stephen King. Crazy yeah. Stephen King. Yeah. And I mean, then he yeah. probably starts the next book when he's had about yeah, three yeah, books. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I don't. I don't really. I don't really have that. I mean, I will. I'll come downstairs and say, "Hey, I finished the book." But the weirdest. I don't know. I call this a ritual, but the strangest thing I do in the process, according to other writers, is um, when I've when I've finished the first draft, and also if I've done a major rewrite. Um, at some point in that, when I when I feel like okay, I've got the next draft done, I will sit down and read the entire draft in a single day, um, which is kind of a brutal day, but I it really helps to, with continuity and not repeating myself and making sure that I'm telling information in the right order, especially when I have books that move back and forth in, in time. It helps me to be sure that it's all fitting together correctly. No rituals here. I'm always in New York on pub date. Uh, I'll go up. Uh, it's always a Tuesday. I'm not sure why it's a Tuesday. But it's always Tuesday. Yeah. yeah, you too. For some reason, it's Tuesday. I'll go up Monday and do PR Monday afternoon. Uh, I usually have dinner with my agent somewhere, nice place in New York, Monday night. Get up early on Tuesday. I always look really tired and sleepy and hungover because I've been out late with a late dinner the night before. Um, I always look tired. Uh, but we do the early early morning, you know, Charlie Rose show, CBS Now, which is my favorite. And then we'll do um, uh, some NPR stuff, um, a few interviews around town, spend some time with, with Doubleday at the publisher, and usually go back home uh, that afternoon. And after, you know, after so many books, uh, there really aren't any rituals. It's, uh, it's, it's always a celebration. There's one, there is a ritual. There's, there is a ritual. Um, the first book off the press is always sent to me right then. And we have a shelf in our little library where we have all the books lined up. And, well, now we're on the second shelf. <laughs> this is a lot, a lot of books. And um, we, Renee and I, we take it, we look at the book. We, we touch it, you know, look at the dust, dust jacket. Uh, there have been a couple times when I dedicated the book to her, and she didn't know it until she opened the book up. So we have that moment together. And then we take the book, and then we put it on the shelf. And it's another year, another book, and it's still kind of hard to believe. So that's our special time together. Thank you. We're out of time. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, uh, Bookmarks, for this wonderful uh, event in a beautiful bookstore. Hope to come back soon. Thank you all. Thanks to my guest, Charlie Lovett, and the staff here at Bookmarks, and the volunteers, and all the loyal customers. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other episodes of Book Tour with John Grisham. You can find these on Apple Podcast, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcast. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work. And thanks to our sponsor, Audible.com. See you next week on the road with Book Tour.